Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at hip-hop in 1984, a whole wave of exploitation movies focused on breakdancing, the rise of Run DMC, and the meeting of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s role? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year by Michelangelo Matos. And this week, the chapter is set at WPIX Channel 11, New York City, June 24th, 1984, for the debut, and as it turns out, the only episode of Graffiti Rock. Ed, what was your take on the hip-hop chapter of Can't Slow Down? I, I I actually thought that I thought that he did a masterful job of showing uh, the momentum, like of of just I got the feel for the momentum of hip hop and how it caught on, and in a way I never had reading anything or watching anything else. Wow, that's pretty heady praise actually, because it's an often told tale. But yeah, I think he did do a really good job. I mean, he doesn't go. He spends a tiny bit of time on the Cool Herc, um, you know, street yes. era, but mostly yeah. he gets to the to the recorded history of of hip hop starting in 1979 with the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> Although again, he doesn't spend a ton of time on that, um, but he, he's he uses this graffiti rock episode as his framework, which is pretty clever. Fits it into the book, you know, because he's got this June date, and this way he gets to tell. <laughs> about all the figures who are on the show, who include Run DMC, who are the guests. You know, Cool Modi uh, is is one of the co-hosts of the show, although not a guest, doesn't get, get a rapping feature. And the te- Treacherous Three has just broken up. And so only two of the three are on there. And I'm blanking on who, uh, which one of the other three it was. Let me, I think I can figure that out. Let's see. Yeah, it was Special K and Cool Modi of the Treacherous Three are there on the show as co-hosts with producer Michael Holman and L.A. Sunshine had just quit the Treacherous Three, so um, wasn't on the show. And and it, it, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to knock knock the producers, but it's like if you're going to have Cool Modi on the show, let the man rap. Uh, um, I guess he yeah. did do a, a little bit of a battle with Run DMC, but didn't perform as the Treacherous Two or the Treacherous Three. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty clever framing device, and it lets him tell kind of the whole history of recorded hip-hop in, in, a, in a pretty clever way. Pretty clever. Pretty clever, I would say. Indeed. The, the, <laughs> yeah, and, and so Michael Holman um, was the co-producer and creator and host of Graffiti Rock, which was conceived as like Soul Train for hip-hop, because Don Cornelius of Soul Train hated hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh you know there's there's this wide open opportunity 
they get the opportunity to do a pilot episode. It, it's it, it's shot at WPIX Channel 11 and aired apparently on Channel 11. Um, pretty weird that they didn't even have a, a deal for a season locally. Like like they bet the whole the house on on getting to syndicate this show, and we'll get to what happens with that. But um, what I thought was interesting about the Michael Holman story was his entree to hip-hop was getting fascinated with the graffiti on the trains. How long has it been since you thought of hip-hop as a visual art form? It's, it, it, that's number two impression of this chapter is how much he brought fine art into this, you know, and, and street level, but really, like, like Holden, it was like a curator. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 hooked up. He's the guy who um, introduced Fab Five Freddy the Blondie, which leads to Rapture. And he'd actually been a bandmate with Jean Michael Bosquat in and uh, a band called Gray in 1979. So he's very hooked up with the art world. I didn't even know, and I'm not even sure how to say Basquiat. I think that's it's right. all right. <laughs> I know but, what you mean. Yeah, I mean, we we can forgive each other. But the great, uh, the late great Haitian American artist um, who was, uh, uh, you know, one of the big wheels of the art scene in New York in the 80s and and came out of the punk adjacent art scene. You know, this is when Soho was affordable and you could rent a loft down there for basically nothing. And, and you know, tons of artists were living in the city at that point, which we haven't seen at this point in 25 years, maybe. But, um, you know, in, in the late 70s and 80s, New Manhattan real estate was very affordable. And, and Holman was one of the people who connected these graffiti artists that he first saw on the trains with the downtown art scene. But somebody like Fad Five Freddy was coming from a place where he saw graffiti as one of the five pillars of hip hop along with, with breakdancing, rapping, uh, DJing, and as Africa Bambada would say, consciousness. I think I, I, I got them all right. But um, So he's just this total maven and networker. He also is the guy who took ex-Sex Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaurin, who at this point in time was managing Bow Wow Wow and about to put out his solo album, about to record his solo album. Um, but uh, Holman is the guy who took McLaren to see Africa Bambata at the Bronx River Community Center, which is where Bambata started, like in 1974 or something. And in 1982, Bam is still playing there. And, you know, McLaren's like request is, I want all of this to, to open for Bow Wow Wow at the Roxy. And by all of this, he meant he wanted to see breakdancers. He wanted to see graffiti. He obviously wanted to see DJs and MCs. And this is a big part of Hip Hop's Second Wind. There's two parts of Hip Hop's Second Wind. One is the recording and the success of Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight on record. But the other part is this connection with downtown. Because, you know, from 73 to 79, roughly, hip hop is this young people's art form in the Bronx, to a lesser extent, in Brooklyn, Harlem, Queens, and... Um, the Bronx, obviously, I think I started with that. Yeah, it started, it started in the Bronx, but I think that was as far as it spread. It wasn't Staten Island uh, to any significant degree. And and it was sputtering out because the kids were getting too old to want to dance at rec centers anymore. And they're starting to go to, to you know have jobs and afford nice clothes and go to a disco like grownups do. And so people were burning out on it and moving on. And... You know, the, the interest in downtown gave people like Africa Bambada a whole second second win to their career, and obviously Grandmaster Flash as well. And then he starts telling the, kind of the history of, uh, of um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and their, and their various troubles. But he, he um, you know, gets into uh, the whole uh, – lawsuit between Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel, who is his his in lead MC of the Furious Five. There's the classic track, The Message, which was recorded and released in July of 82, that was mainly written by Ed Fletcher, a guy named Ed Fletcher, who worked at Sugar Hill, and also Melly Mel, who literally recycled a big chunk of his rap from the super rapping record that was Grandmaster Flash's first record before they were even on Sugar Hill Records when they were on a label called Enjoy. 
Um, so I don't know. I'm throwing a whole bunch of stuff out there. And then there's the white line single, White Lines Don't Do It, which is a follow-up to the message from late 83, credited to Grandmaster and Melly Mel. But at this point, Grandmaster Flash is already suing Sugar Hill. He and Melly Mel are breaking up. The record's eventually going to be re-released as by Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five. And there's just an, an ugly, ugly lawsuit between Flash and Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records. Just another person pissed off at Sugar Hill Records. It's like... <laughs> And so it's interesting to me that, that Matos does skips kind of two things. He doesn't spend much time on the birth of hip hop in the Bronx, which is fine. That was a full 10 years, 11 years before this events was booked. And he spends very little time on Sugar Hill Records. But um, so we'll do the same. We're, I'm going to jump to Spoonie G's Love Rap, which was on Enjoy Records, one of the, the key 1979 tracks. Uh, this is Spoonie G with Love Rap with backing by Pumpkin and Friends. And that was Spoonie G's Love Rap, which I frankly picked because um, Pumpkin is somebody I've come across in, in multiple episodes of Techno Roll. I think he ends up going to England and recording, uh, being a big part of the launch of the Bristol scene. Um, but Love Rap, to me, is notable because it sounds like an actual hip-hop record instead of sounding like the Sugar Hill records of the same time, even though it's a live band. The way they're playing, it sounds like a drum break, like you you might have heard, you know, Cool Herc playing um, in the Bronx, and and it doesn't sound like chic, like you know the the band that that backed up mm-hmm. the Sugar Hill Gang on their first records, just covering Chic's Good Times. This doesn't sound like that, so it's it's a little different. It's a little more hip hop, but it's not quite uh, the big break, the big break. But I don't know. What was your take on the whole? Grandmaster Flash versus Melly Mel thing, like. Well, it certainly ruined some momentum for a lot of different people. And um, what what fascinates me? Well, I mean, so much of this is fascinating. That that the way he approached this, where he said the kids wouldn't audition because they didn't believe there could be a a hip hop gig. Um, yeah. That this, that's how elemental. That's how. I mean. What was the dem- here's what I want to know. What was the demographic? If if it's a, there's a line in this chapter that African Americans didn't like hip hop. Okay, so who liked it? Was there Young an age cut off? That what yeah, it was? It was a generational yeah. split and also regional. Yep. Um yep. but yeah, and, and it and it in the seventies when hip hop was starting, there was a split between the like the fans of DJ Hollywood, who's literally <clears throat> The rapper, he wasn't a hip-hop guy. He was a disco rapper. Like, he was a DJ and an MC who would perform at disco clubs, and he would rap over disco records. But he's the guy who popularized, you know, wave your hands in the air like you just don't care. And all of the, not all of, but many of the cadences that you hear Melly Mel and the first generation of recorded rappers using, they got from DJ Hollywood. And he got them from a guy named Pigmeat Markham, whose record, you know, Here Come to Judge was an underground hit in 1968. And who was also a, an African-American minstrel performer who worked in blackface until the 1940s. So this stuff, you know, to me, that's just crazy. But DJ Hollywood hated hip hop and his audience were adults who went to discos, who wore silk shirts and, you know, dressed up fancy and, and were dating, you know, grown women who also had jobs and money. And and they saw the hip hop kids that were, you know, watching Bambata at the Bronx River Community Center as kids, not those punks who are rolling around on the floor wearing T-shirts and jeans and playing this crazy music that they didn't want any part of. And that was only a five or six year age split. And yeah. that that holds over into the 80s. 
and it's primarily the kind of the more committed you are to R&B, the more you hate hip hop is kind of my impression. Or if you were in your 30s and the 80s, you probably hated hip hop. And it was it was strictly a generational split from what I can tell. But yeah, so that makes that, me feel bad. That makes me feel a little more hip than I thought I was from reading this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I I was completely oblivious to all this at this point in time. I think the first time I see hip hop is going to be 85 or 86 when I buy a magazine in Dallas, um, like a locally made magazine that just makes some references to how this record isn't good enough. They were reviewing like some Jesus and Mary Chain single or something and say, this is cool, but it's not so cool. You're going to give up all your hip hop records. And I'm like, what? Hip hop, huh? You know, <laughs> but I didn't say yeah. anything else about hip hop, <laughs> but it definitely got my attention, but I didn't know what they, what they were referring to. So yeah, I was a corn dog. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> a corn dog in Borker, Texas. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's it, the thing about it. You know, there's multiple references to kids not showing up for these auditions because they didn't believe there would be a show. And Grandmaster Flash doesn't show up for the shoot of Blondie's Rapture video because he also just didn't believe it was possible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and and you know, Flash, of course, it doesn't mention this in this chapter, but he could have been the first act on Sugar Hill Records, but he was just like, why would anybody want to make a record of us? He just didn't didn't couldn't process how this could be possible. So missed out on that chance, but he, you know, did have multiple hit records, and including Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, which is the first recording on a commercially released record of a DJ mixing records hip hop style. But it's still fascinating to me that none of the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five records actually feature the way they played live, which is Grandmaster Flash as the DJ with the MCs rapping over, and, that, and that's just an enormous loss. But you know, it is uh, what it is. Um, it's also interesting that that this Holma cat um, wanted his initial vision was he wanted to have a 70 percent black audience with 20 percent Latino kids and 10 percent white. And the producers are immediately rejiggering that ratio. It's not quite Alan. Uh, I mean, um, Dick Clark versus Alan Freed in the 50s. But, you know, that tendency is still is still pretty strong. Um, but yeah, and then and then it talks about Cool Modi and how he's, you know, kind of gives sets him up as the reigning battle king of hip hop. And hip hop's of course always been very competitive, and you know, Cool Modi had basically had the throne since he had thrashed MC Busy B at the Harlem World in December of '81. Like that, they had a battle rap. MC Busy B was one of the you know the serious first generation MCs, and and Mo. Um, you know, broke him down and, and, and sent him back in, in 81. And, and from then on, you know, the Treacherous Three has a run on record. Um, and yeah, he's kind of the, the reigning king, but the new kings are going to come and play on the show as well. We'll get to them a, a, in a little bit. But first, I talk about uh, Nucleus, which um, and their track Jam on it, which is which was the big crossover hit. Uh, the year before and and I can't actually remember now how he how Matos gets that in do you remember what the connection is it because of the New York City Breakers that are the dance crew on Graffiti Rock I can't remember either yeah but somehow he he mentions Jam on it which is which is uh, a a big crossover hip-hop hit in the dance clubs in 83 I want to say but then he gets into the whole thing about the hip hop movies and it's easy to forget, but this is the year of breaking and breaking Two. Both those movies come out in 1984. <laughs> so, so the movie chapter we had a couple weeks ago with, with um, stop making sense. Not only did we, I mean, at least I was like oblivious to why is it purple rain in this chapter? As you pointed out on Twitter, it's because it hadn't come out yet. Um, but I didn't even think about any of these hip hop movies either that were huge this year. And so they talk about Wild Style, which was the first one to drop, only had a $200,000 budget, but it did have Grandmaster Flash in there. That, then there's Beat Street, which Michael Holman, the producer of Graffiti Rock, the TV show we're talking about in this episode, is an associate producer of. That one had a $10 million budget. It's got the Treacherous Three in it, also the New York City Breakers dance crew. 
they've got the winner of the Big Break Dance Contest featured in the movie. And Harry Belafonte is the producer. So we've got your big Calypso hip-hop connection uh, right there. Uh, journalist Stephen Hager wrote the treatment. Arthur Baker was involved. He was the producer of Africa Bambata's Planet Rock, which was a massive hip-hop hit in 1982. Soundtracks on Cotillion Records and Goes Gold. And but they're beaten to the punch by Breakin, which has a $2 million budget and is made in two months by Canon Films just to beat um, Beat Street, which <laughs> is, is pretty petty, I think. Um, but Polydor Records had the soundtrack deal. Uh, Breakin does $13 million in the opening weekend. So right off the gate, they do six times uh, their costs, and they're able to get... Uh, break into Electric Boogaloo in theaters by December. And let's go ahead and hear our next track. This is Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel, White Lines. was Grandmaster and Melly Mel, uh, sometimes released as Melly Mel, Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five. White Lines, kind of the follow-up to the message, swipes the bass line from um, Cavern by Liquid Liquid. Liquid Liquid's one of these uh, kind of, almost kind of no-wave adjacent um, minimalist funk group. I, I was getting confused, confused with ESG, which was another um, no-wave adjacent minimalist funk group but white lines is another record that does sound a bit more like a hip-hop record than than most of the stuff on sugar hill but it's very much a sugar hill records record grandmaster flash is credited on it in the initial releases but he had nothing to do with it and and is at this point locked in a lawsuit with sugar hill records that's going to go bankrupt in just a year and and flash essentially wins everything except for the rights to the term furious five and melly mel gets to use the uh the term um grandmaster as well so yeah i i like the way you described that and and um one thing that I should have brought up earlier was that Matos references this uh, the show DJ Jazzy J scratching a record and it's an Enjoy record, which was which was an early hip hop label. It wasn't the first, obviously that was Sugar Hill, but this guy Bobby Robinson, who was goes way back. Like he had a record store right next door to the Apollo Theater in Harlem. He had been putting out records since the 50s and 60s. A number of labels, Enjoy was just one of them. But when he saw what Sugar Hill did with Rapper's Delight, he immediately starts putting out um, hip hop records. He puts out Rapid and Rock in the House by Funky Four Plus One, puts out Super Rap in the first Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five records. And he also puts out Love Rap by Spoonie G, which is one we played uh, up at the top of the show. Um, and then. Um, Matos also talks about how he put it, puts out a record, Just Having Fun by Dougie Fresh. Although the way it was initially spelled, it was D-O-U-G apostrophe E, like Douge Fresh. <laughs> um, but he's Dougie Fresh is, of course, about to put out, uh, partner with Slick Rick and put out the show and La Di Da Di on Cool Tempo Records, which is one of a new wave of hip hop uh, that that's getting started in this period. But did you see any of these um, hip hop exploitation oh, movies at the time? These, these movies, and I knew that hip hop existed by, by this summer, um, but these movies could not have been, I mean, where they were playing and the fact that they even existed. I mean, I remember Jim Kata which starred um, classic gymnast whose name I can't, I can't remember. I think it was Bart. Um, uh, yeah, it was one of those guys. Yes. Um, yeah, Kurt, it was Kurt Thomas. Kurt Thomas. Olympic. Kurt Thomas. Uh, yes. Good job. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I remember that, that, but I do not remember any of these. And I mean, the, the not one even thing breaking that, two so, electric boogaloo. You know, maybe I did. 
Because <laughs> that one it. had penetration and border, I, I, I will say. Well, the, you know, what's so true about the, what he says about uh, breakdance and being the lost leader, that is that is the thing that got, you know, that got my attention. I don't mean that it it's the thing that I couldn't ignore. I worked at a newspaper and we were still getting our photo. We, we were electronic on all the AP wire stuff coming right into computers, but we still got our photos. They printed out on a printer. And one night um, that summer of 84, I went back to the to look for some photos. And there was a photo of a breakdancer who'd injured himself. And um, and I was I want to ask about that. Does anybody breakdance anymore? But before before you answer, I'll just tell you, somebody must have been really bored that summer because he had this same person. Really, you know, there's a little title to the to the description of the photo. And the title was Broke Dancer. <laughs> and, and i think the guy might have been paralyzed Ouch. i mean which was highly which was highly possible when you're doing this stuff yeah when you're spinning on your head like that it, it, i i definitely have worried about uh when i've seen break dancers um spinning on their head i've always worried about neck injuries there but yeah now i and and it's funny i said i didn't hadn't heard of hip-hop but I was aware that there were kids breakdancing in the cafeteria at school, I guess in 84. Okay. But for one thing, none of the guys who broke, who were doing breakdancing at my school were black. And I don't remember them even playing music with it. I just remember dorks in members-only jackets putting cardboard boxes on the floor and spinning around the floor in the university <laughs> cafeteria. I had no connect. I had no clue that it was anything but a dumb trend for white kids. I had no idea that there was, um, you know, this African-American culture going on. And I didn't even know there was a musical connection to it. And, but I did see um, Breaking 2 on cable, but probably not until 85. Um, but even then it didn't, it wasn't until I heard uh, Run DMC um, in 86 that that i that i that it clicked that something amazing was going on and i don't know how i missed run dmc in this whole period except i didn't have mtv well i was here's this this reminded me i was i was a sports writer and i and and it's a medium-sized market so you covered everything and so um especially um after football season i was going to two or three high school basketball games a week and Columbus, Georgia was uh, like Atlanta or um, any other big Southern city. Um, it's, it's, there's African-Americans and there's, there's Caucasians, there's just as many. And um, so I was going to some all black schools. I do not remember a bit of this stuff there. And I remember the cheerleaders and I'm sure that this is a, you know, like you said, a generational thing. Um, Maybe, maybe it was, you know, like I would remember if somebody started breakdancing. So, but it was Georgia and maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe it just hadn't trickled down and Atlanta was nothing like it is now. It was not the the kind of um, cutting edge place. You know, it, it had cutting edges, but not, not like, not like the, like it is now. So, um, yeah. And I've done a couple episodes actually on how Atlanta became a record since industry hub and it has to do with la reed and babyface coming there in the mid 80s and and uh, a number mm -hmm. of um uh crisscross came out of atlanta as well and and so yes. there's a yeah. certain amount of infrastructure and the local hip-hop talent had matured such that they're about to it's about to blow up like a volcano without cast and the goody mob and you know, all this yeah. massive amount of talent yeah. coming out. And then it takes its rightful place because Atlanta should always have been a major musical production city and originally was in the 20s for both country and Western yeah. and blues. But for whatever reason, Nashville and Dallas and Memphis and New Orleans all got way ahead of Atlanta for most of the 20th century. And um, but yeah, and, 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 and in the early 80s, my understanding is that hip hop just hadn't really caught on in Atlanta in any in any real. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I don't know anybody who, I mean, I just I can't even. And this is again generational, but I can't fathom 
any, and I knew black, I knew a, my mentor in the drum section in high school, he became, he went pro and he toured and was in a, a funk band uh, for the rest of the seventies and into the well into the eighties. And I can't fathom him doing anything hip hop related. Uh, yeah. And that makes perfect sense. And that fits in with the whole theory that if you're in your thirties and if you're into R and B, you're not um, that into hip hop, but let's yeah, take a quick spot. Sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about I want to talk about the soundtrack albums um, for these exploitation movies. And then we'll talk about Run DMC. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And that was our sponsor break, and now we're back. And I want to take a look at some of these soundtracks because... All of these soundtracks, and Matos makes this point that basically hip-hop was moving so fast that all of these soundtracks were already dated by the time they come out. But here's here's who's on the wild style. This is the first one, very low-budget movie, but this is the first one uh, to come out. And this by far, I think, has the best artists on the soundtrack, at least. I, um, but you've got uh, Grandmaster Kaz, You've got Busy B. You've got the Cold Crush Brothers even doing a battle with the Fantastic Freaks. You've got the Fantastic Freaks in their own right. You've got DJ Grand Wizard Theodore, who's the guy who invented scratching. Um, Cold Crush Brothers again. Then you've got Double Trouble, which is Rodney C. and K.K. Rockwell. Then you've got Grandmaster Cass and Chris Stein again. Um, and then Grand Wizard Theodore. And then uh, Rommel Z and Shock Dell. So that's a pretty kicking soundtrack that's very authentic uh to hip-hop and then beat street has melody mel it's got soul sonic force you know africa bambata's crew uh, arthur baker the producer of, of bambata dj zebby d juicy the treacherous three are here um jenny burton rockers revenge uh, la la ralph raleigh tina b jazzy j Cindy mazel juicy and the system so a couple of names I recognize, a lot of names I don't recognize. I have to assume to some extent Beach Street was a little passed up. And then Breakin has Ollie and Jerry, the Bar K's, like what? Yeah, <laughs> 70s Memphis no punk. Um, Hot yeah. Streak, Carolyn Towns, Ollie and Jerry again, 3V, 
Firefox, Reflex, Rufus, and Chaka Khan again. What? Uh, and and Chris the Glove Taylor and David Stores and Ice T. Although I don't know if it's the Ice T or a different Ice T. But so yeah, and then pretty much the same lineup on Breaking Two. More Ollie and Jerry. More Carolyn Towns. So I would have to say Wild Style. I, I, I give props to and Beat Streets. Okay, but the breaking both the breaking soundtracks are pretty whack from what I can tell. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's just interesting what the how hip hop is seen by these people who are exploited. <laughs> do you do you remember the Shaka Khan the single from that from that time frame? Because it I know it was. On I MTV remember. Yeah, one. that's when I first heard Shaka Khan. I can't remember which was the first hit, but she was on. And it was. It was um, the guy doing the like. Do you what would you call that a rap? That was you know the guy was doing the rap over it, and it had kind of a, it had a harmonica part, a feel for you. I think I love you. Yeah, that yeah, that. yeah. That was first. a feel for you. Yeah, but I guess so. I mean, at the time though, I was interpreting it in a Prince context, like <laughs> like that makes sense. Prince was new to me and Prince was overwhelming and Prince was awesome. So I was just like seeing this as as <laughs> Prince adjacent and, and I didn't even know what hip hop or rap was. So I, I wasn't um, hip enough to, to, to connect it. What was your take on Shaka at the time? Well, I knew her from Rufus and, yeah. and so, and I mean, I liked it. I liked the song. Um, the guy rapped, the guy, uh, it's okay to call him right. He was rapping, right? When he's doing, I can't, cannot imitate it. Yeah. He's I, doing a really fast, um, rap about Shaka Khan, but I, I enjoyed it. And I thought she was, I mean, she was, you know, when Rufus came out, which was, I was in ninth grade. Um, they, I mean, they were Rufus featuring Shaka Khan. So, you know, she always was a natural, uh, person to be a solo artist. Um, but, and I mean, it was heavy D was on Friday night videos too, at some point. And it's to gotta be, be around some, sometime, I, some of the time. Frame. I think he's a couple, a couple more years later. And Steph's pointing out that that's Prince, what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Prince actually wrote, I feel for you. Okay. So I feel a little bit hipper. Oh, there. oh, interesting. Good, good catch. <laughs> I think part of my brain knew that already. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a uh, uh, yeah it was it was. It was who confusing. did the rap? Do you know who did the rap? I'd, I'd have to talking. I'd have to, I'd have to. It's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll well, actually, it, it should be pretty easy to figure out um, who did that. Let's see. Yeah, he wrote it for. It was Melly Mel. Melly Mel himself. Oh, that's so, yeah. cool. So that's that definitely cool. rap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, duh. How did I not know that was Melly Mel? <laughs> we are learning. We're just learning things. We're just there you a go, couple man. Of corn dog white boys. Uh, out <laughs> that's <here>. right. <laughs> yeah. Running our mouth and talking about stuff we don't know. Yes. But now let's turn to the revolutionaries. Uh, Run DMC, who were on uh, Graffiti Rock, the one and only episode of, of Graffiti Rock, and they were so new and so hot like their first single had just come out the year before in may 83 it's like that back to a sucker mcs on profile records just an apocal record absolutely just a historically significant record you know absolutely immense because it's the first time somebody makes a record that's true to the spirit of hip hop, to the sonic spirit of the way hip hop is actually made in the rec centers and then the apartment parties and, and, and in the early hip hop clubs where you've got a DJ scratching records, maybe you've got a drum machine and you've got MCs rapping over it. It's very bare bones, it's very stark, it's very powerful. Larry Smith uh, produced these records for Run DMC. They were managed by Russell Simmons, appropriately enough since um, his younger brother Joseph is DJ Run of Run DMC and Daryl McDaniels is DMC. And, uh, you know, just 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 a revolutionary moment. Um, R Russell Simmons had already, uh, you know, first becomes historical, historically important when he manages Curtis Blow, who's kind of the second guy to have massive hit hip hop records with the breaks and then does a Christmas record, Christmas rap 
uh, record. Christmas Rap might have actually been his first record. Um, but anyway, Russell Simmons has kind of made himself – first he's a party promoter and a gig promoter, and then he becomes a manager for Curtis Blow. And pretty soon he's like the only manager in hip-hop or one of the few. And, and Run DMC uh, being his little brother's group um, becomes you know one of one of the acts on his roster. They get him on Profile Records. He didn't expect much from their first single, but um, you know by the summer of '83, it, it's like that is selling 10,000 units a week. And and Matos connects it to his hometown of Minneapolis. And tells the story of how in December '83, Run DMC goes out to Minneapolis and plays First Avenue on a Wednesday night and only 64 people show up. So, you know, that's, that's where hip hop was in Minneapolis, uh, in December of 83. So, you know, we don't have to feel entirely square for not, not being hip to it. And then, uh, run DMC, uh, is the first true hip hop album, the self-titled, uh, debut album that comes out, uh, the next year. And, uh, and Rockbox is the, is the lead single off that. Um, it hits strong enough for them to get on Soul Train over the objections, the visible objections of Don Cornelius, if you've ever watched that one. And they make they yeah. shoot a video for $27,000. It's, a, it's a, a hit on MTV. So let's go ahead and hear um, Sucka MCs by Run DMC, produced by Larry Smith. Sucker MCs by Run DMC, uh, a classic um, B-side of their first single, It's Like That, and just completely revolutionized hip-hop. And I think to me is when hip-hop takes a run at rock music, at becoming music for aggressive young dudes to listen to in their cars and listen to and read the lyrics like it it moves away from being a party music and a dance music and becomes a listening music i think and a macho listening music for sure mm-hmm. do you remember the first time you came across run dmc yes and i'd actually read a review or read something that said basically what you just said and and i it was still so different that to me that i didn't quite see it but of course i i mean when aerosmith did walk this way which um you know was a song of my youth and my band played that song and um but i do i mean the thing that and backing me up on this disconnect is the fact that first avenue in december of 1983 so they may have may they may still have been filming purple rain there around that time or they just had finished and um you know run dmc plays at the you know the place that purple rain is made at and that's how many people show up. So that's how much people connected um, these two musical forms. Um, maybe Prince was there, though. I mean, was he was he dialed in enough? I mean, that guy was always supposedly always going to clubs, but it was super late at night. But yeah. I could totally see him I don't know. being there. I could, too, but I bet he was out of town. I bet he was touring. Oh, good point. I don't yeah, know if he was point. touring or not, but 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 he yeah. could have been out of town touring. But he also was famously late to hip-hop and didn't like it. Um, I don't think he has – he doesn't have any rapping on his records until – he definitely has some rapping on the Love Sexy album on Alphabet Street. He might have some rapping on Sign of the Times. I can't remember. Yeah, he does, but it's not – it's clearly not his strong suit or his, you know, passion. It's just something that he had to right. adapt to the market. Right. And since he had such a command over the R&B scene uh, in the early '80s, I think I think he viewed hip hop as something that kind of spoiled his party. That that, mm-hmm. you know, even though he was young, he was so ahead of his age with, with, and his commitment to R and B that, that he's just a classic case of somebody who's on the wrong side of that 
generational mm-hmm. gap. Um, even though he's not, he wasn't that old. You know, he wasn't much older than Run DMC was, but he mm-hmm. was just so precocious. He was making records in the late '70s, and by the early '80s, he's about to become, you know, the king of rock and roll. Uh, so yeah, but but yeah, Run DMC. I mean, they immediately connected with me as soon as I heard. I think it was Peter uh, Pied Piper was the first song uh, I heard by them, and just just hearing. Um, Jam Master Jay scratched on that record just completely blew my mind, and then I loved the yelling rapping style. I just immediately was was all in with the machismo and that. Um, and and it's also funny, he 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 mentions how um, Russell Simmons makes them start dressing like Jam Master Jay with the the all black and the leather jackets and the Kangol hats and uh, the gold chains. He doesn't mention that they were wearing these ridiculous houndstooth jackets as their stage uniform. (laughs) (laughs) Which again, even that was a break from the kind of like the Furious Five had dressed um, as if they were in Earth, Wind and Fire or something. Like they, they were trying to do the big time a staged costume act and so when run dmc went in the other direction and dressed like street kids it, it was just yet another way that they distinguished themselves from the previous generation of hip-hop the most important thing is the record production though um and then you know the the uh matos weaves this back in the story because there's this important meeting that happens at the graffiti uh, rock um after party um which First, he tells how Graffiti Rock's pilot was successful in the local New York market. It was well-reviewed in the New York Times, but then they go to the big, I guess, syndication convention or whatever where all the TV, local TV guys go and see what shows are trying to be syndicated and bid on them, and nobody wanted it. Um, you know. And I think it was just a case of, of basically New York's the only city with hip-hop at this point in time. LA's just starting to get it. Maybe Miami had a little bit of it, but definitely the largely white guys who own regional TV stations. I mean, if you were owning a TV station in Des Moines, what are you going to do with graffiti rock? Like, you know, this was a, you know, like Duran Duran is is freaky at this point in time. So they were just not ready for that kind of stuff. But the big, big meeting that happens at the graffiti rock after party is that russell simmons who's already this hip-hop mini mogul meets rick rubin who's already produced his first hip-hop record it's yours uh, by t la rock and jazzy J. he was actually down with cool modi but cool modi was already i think on sugar hill but but either way he couldn't get him on his own label so uh, let's go ahead and hear that this is the first record uh hip-hop record rick rubin made it's yours by t la rock and jazzy J. It's Yours by T. The Rock and Jazzy J, produced by Rick Rubin, a, a record that was, quote unquote, so black that Russell Simmons was sure the producer of it was black. And so when he meets Rick Rubin, he sees this long haired white kid completely shocked. Um, but they quickly hit it off. And Rubin convinces Russell Simmons to form a label together, which he names Def Jam and uh, immediately puts out LL Cool J's I Need a Beat which um, is the first Def Jam release. It sells 100,000 units, which is, for a record label coming out of your dorm room, that is pretty amazing. It tells you what kind of demand there was uh, for hip-hop in the greater New York area. Um, and, that, and then they also talk about the Beastie Boys who are hanging around with Rick Rubin at this point and had already put out their Cookie Puss uh, 12-inch, which is just a prank phone call over a va- like an electro sort of beat. And um, uh, but it, it gets it's, gets the beasties on their way, and he does talk about how Russell Simmons, as soon as he sees the Beastie Boys, he gloms onto him because he had already envisioned 
he knew there was going to be a massive market for the first white hip hop artists, and sure enough, he finds him. And and you know the rest is history. I don't think they're the. I'm not going to die on the hill that they're the first hip hop white hip hop artists, but they're the first massively successful white hip hop artists. I have to say, did you know much of the story of the of the Def Jam Secret Origins? No, and I mean this. It's really interesting. All of this is. It's amazing how what a small world it is. How all these these guys got together so early. Yeah. Um, did did the I I'm pretty sure the Beastie Boys opened for Madonna on her first tour, which is in early '85. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. that that had to be. You know, her she she I saw Madonna's second open her second tour in Miami in '87. She still had a ton. I mean, a predominance of young girls. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was on the floor of the Orange Bowl. It was the only yes, the wannabes. It was the only time I've had floor seats way in the back and still could see because that's how many little girls there were I could see <laughs> over their heads. And, you know, I'm thinking about the Beastie Boys. Were they always licensed to ill Nate? That's what I want to know. I mean, uh, were they always like phase. that? In this phase they were, but they're chameleons because they were originally a hardcore punk band and had right. put out a couple singles. They had a girl drummer and they but they get more and more into hip hop and then they meet Rick Rubin and his kind of macho ethos rubs off on them and they kind of chase the girl out of the group essentially and <laughs> and uh um no she wasn't the drummer cuz cuz Mike D was the drummer anyway it I, was a girl it's a girl's name that that they quote yeah she was there was a girl in the band about. maybe she was uh I don't know, cause cause Ad Rock was the guitarist and 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 MCA was the bassist. I can't remember what she played, but anyway, there there was a girl in the original hardcore version of the Beastie Boys that was very different from this. But then they evolve into the License to Ill era, obnoxious frat boy. I mean, it was sort of a parody because they were they were yes, artsy, exactly. artsy rich kids from Manhattan. Um, yeah. And so it was. It was a part they were playing, um, but it was one of those parts that kind of ate their whole life. And and yeah. they had to, you know, they've apologized for a lot of the stuff they did um, in that period later on because they become very much social justice warriors, for lack of a better term. Not, I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, but just like they really did. Like they were all about free Tibet, and you know, um, definitely. Mm-hmm anti-sexist and anti-racist and all that stuff you know uh king ad rock ends up marrying um the woman from bikini kill which is pretty you know classically ironic the uh you know the 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 leader of the riot girl movement marrying the the most sexist (laughs) band in the 80s but (laughs) (laughs) which they probably weren't the most sexist band in the 80s but they were definitely most they were right up there um, right up there for sure with the crew and 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 others, but um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's a fascinating story. I've 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 read it several times now, and, and the alliance between Rick Rubin, I think uh, Dan Charnas's big payout, a history of hi- the business of hip hop, probably has the most exhaustive version of of the their interactions and meetings that I've read. But it's pretty fascinating because Russell Simmons and his run. Uh, Rush Productions had way more artists like Run DMC. Like I always used to get confused and think that Run DMC was a Def Jam artist, but no, they were they were on Profile Records the whole time, and and um, but they were managed by Russell Simmons. And then then uh, Rick Rubin produced uh, the Raising Hell album. So you know, there's lots of crossover, but you know, just because Rick Rubin produced it and Russell Simmons managed it doesn't mean that it was on Def Jam. So, yeah. Does, um, do you think the, is the empresario is the empresario? It feels like just from reading this, they're just a handful of guys. It seems like the empresario really loomed large in this early. Now, certainly there were those guys in early rock and with the Beatles and with um, oh, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm McLaren is a yeah. you know great example. Yeah, I mean, but it just seems like these guys who really saw like and were were way above you know they weren't um 
they weren't like Andrew Lug, who wanted them to do all the naughty things. You know, I mean, they, yeah. these guys were really had some serious vision. And, you know, one I'm um, fab five fretting when he says that about I didn't want them to think this was folk art. I mean, that is that is really that's a fine artist talking right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was interesting. It was it was. That was one of the things that that like. I think I think that a lot of white people in the art scene were shocked that certainly like Fab Five Freddy and even Shawn Michael Basquiat knew them as well as they did. But it's like, look, you're world famous. You're in all the newspapers, all the magazines, you're on TV all the time. Why shouldn't a curious, smart black kid be aware of you? You know, especially somebody who's got artistic yeah. talent and ambitions. But it's just, yeah. you know, white people shocked again. <laughs> You know, so, yeah, the, the, the sophistication of, of Fab Five Freddy and others that were, were in the graffiti aspect of hip hop is definitely notable. But yeah, the imp- impresario thing is a big deal. And, and you notice that in this chapter, Matos talks about Sylvia Robinson of, of Sugar Hill. She talks about... Yeah. Um, the enjoy records dude and bobby robinson yep. and uh and then yep. uh, she talks about russell simmons and and rick rubin so pretty much um and a little bit about bambada and arthur baker but they, she, she doesn't mention uh tommy boy records at all which they put out planet rock and and ah. uh, were kind of the big electro uh producers electro is a, a kind of a I mean, that's the genre that retroactively Planet Rock is considered to be. And things that sound like Planet Rock are called electro. But that, to me, is a genre that kind of got retroactively named in the 2000s when the dance music scene started being nostalgic for that era of hip-hop style stuff. And and it was also one of those styles that had a pretty brief run at the top. Like, Planet Rock comes out in 82, and by 84, Run DMC's already made it kind of obsolete. And then you hear electro-style records popping up, like, in L.A. and later in Miami, although the Two Live crew was originally from L.A., which totally uh, surprised me. Luther Campbell was from Florida. That, that's that, surprising. Uh, other guys. That is surprising. Yeah, that, that one really uh, knocked me for a loop. But, but electro... Um, and I remember... Like when Straight Outta Compton was, you know, glued to my car cassette deck in '89, there were some electro tracks on that album, and I can remember being kind of curious about it. But it turns out that the the, the uh, 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 Dr. Dre was originally an electro uh, DJ, and, and we talked about I think on the hip, first hip hop episode of Let It Roll, right? And I talked about I can't remember what Dre's original group was in, but the Arabian Prince was in it with them and and so Electro lasts a lot longer in LA than it does in New York. But you know, that's all kind of a side thing. But yeah, the Empresario thing is definitely huge. And I think a lot of it has to do with the centrality of record producers to hip hop because ultimately the producer kind of takes the place of the DJ to some extent. Like yeah. when you think of Public Enemy, you think more about Hank Shockley and the Bomb Squad than you think about uh, Terminator X. Although Terminator X is scratching on the records and does have a, a, a pretty big part to play, um, but the musical visionaries are more Hank Shockley and and and. Um, the bomb squad than they are uh than it is terminator x but yeah so i, I don't know final thoughts on the on the hip-hop chapter Any, yeah i i uh i have a sad tale to tell it's gonna hurt you as much as it hurts me Oof. um i i was a i told you i was a sports writer up until may of, of 1985 and um atlanta hawks were that was another thing that we would cover pro games in atlanta and the Atlanta Hawks were having were having a pretty bad year, and somebody decided to um, from have a hip hop concert after um, a Hawks game, and it happened to be one I was covering. And um, here comes the painful part. There was there were three three acts. The headliner Run DMC, wow. um, Roxanne Roxanne Chante. Oh man. Um, yeah, yours truly, 24 years old. Um, I filed my story, and one of the guys in the press room 
he was older and was a long hair. He was, I mean, and I mean, I was a long hair, but I mean, he still had long hair in the middle of the 80s. He was a camera guy. He was going out to listen to it. Now, I doubt Run DMC was was out yet. I, I would bet that Run DMC was another hour or two away, you know, or at least an hour. Because um, Roxanne was the was at the I think at the maybe she was the second act, but um, I wanted to get to Manuel's Tavern and start drinking, and yours truly <laughs> walked right through that. Uh, I could have seen freaking Run DMC. Oh and, no, man! Uh, oh yeah. When did you maybe realize what you had slept on? I get well. It definitely during you know certainly during hip you know the hip hop evolution thinking about it but way before then when people are calling them the Beatles of but I'll tell you this I've had a techniques turntable since 1979 the same turntable and I started wearing Adidas superstars in 1981 well there so, you go <laughs> <laughs> you're practically here's up. the thing here's how there you go here's how I know that that I could I wasn't as it's as bad as it sounds like my friend Tim who went to Morehouse, was younger than me, and who went to L.A. that the summer of 84 and tracked down, because he had friends from Morehouse who lived in L.A., tracked down Mr. T, was the guy that talked his way into the Culture Club press conference in Atlanta. He was as dialed in as hip as anybody I knew. And, I mean, I wasn't unhip, but if he, if he had been into hip-hop at all, if it had been on his radar, he would have been covering that Hawks game, and he would have gone to that show. So that's how... And I was shocked. Here's what shocked me. It was an older crowd and it was, it was capacity. There oh. were a lot of people there. It was more African-American than, nor- than normal. You know, usually it was a mix and this was an Af- more African-American crowd and the Hawks ended up winning. Um, but I was, I noticed the eight, it was older than I thought that it would be. And I was shocked because I, you know, like those kids who didn't believe, I just it was so not on my radar. Huh? Yeah. So, uh, there you have it. Yep. I, I was the same way, completely oblivious, and I forgive myself. I was a I was a corn dog from Borger, Texas. Like, what am I supposed to know? Yeah. About you know? Like, well, yeah. And but, you caught up though, and I, you know, and it, when Aerosmith, when Aerosmith, I when Aerosmith showed up last tale, when they showed up on that video, I felt good about. By that time, I was getting getting a program because I thought, okay, maybe Aerosmith will come back. I was the the flag flyer for Aerosmith for a really long time, but I had I had that delusion for decades. So <laughs> yeah, I I was anyway. excited to see them come back with that, but then boy, did that turn on me. That that yes <laughs> became, became <laughs> my absolute yep. pet peeve of the '90s was was I'm, Aerosmith's second with, era. Yeah. But with uh, totally makes sense. Yeah, but fortunately for 1984, Aerosmith was deep in cocaine addiction and, <laughs> and not not bothering many people. That's right. Although I think they were putting out albums. But anyhow, Fred Legg, I'm Nate Wilcox. This is 80s Roll, and we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's "Can't Slow Down," how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year. And next week we'll be back, and we'll be uh, talking from Arrowhead Stadium where Michael Jackson and the Jacksons are about to launch the victory tour. So, Fred Light. Kansas City. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate continues the Holy Roll series, this time interviewing Mahalia Jackson biographer Mark Burford. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 